Hi and welcome to another episode of the Picablo Radio. My guest today is Heza Martinez from the USA and she runs a website called Let's Let Her Together. More about that in a minute. First, I would like to make a couple of announcements. The first thing is a welcome. Welcome to our new team members, Julia, Natalia and also Mark. Mark will be our trainer in Sydney so that we have in every city now a trainer again. Julia will be our first visual coach who helps us to implement visualization more inside organizations and also run a graduate program that we are about to launch. And last but not least, I would like to introduce Natalia. Natalia is a journalist and story writer and very passionate about storytelling. And here we would like to invite you, if you feel like visualization, Bicablo, visual facilitation did something to your life, but not sure whether you want to be on the podcast yet, then maybe write to us and we write with you an article, a case study, a story about your transformation, whether it's your personal one or your organization. I think that inspires others and helps to get the word out that more people get in contact with visualization. And on the subject of visualization, if you haven't been into the Bicablo training, then maybe come around. We have training coming up in the first quarter of 2019 in every major city, including Perth and Wellington. And now let's get started with the interview. So before we hop into the interview, a couple of words about Heather. Heather Martinez lives currently in Durango and loves it. It's her area, it's the country of Colorado and it's a beautiful nature site. And that helps her to work with her fine art and to get her mind free for the big things she has in her mind. You will be mind blown by things that I haven't heard before and I really had an awesome time to this interview. Today, most of her time is on Let's Let Her Together and her coaching practice, where she helps people to learn to practice their lettering. So you can actually book a session with her and learn to improve your lettering on a one-on-one -on -one basis via Zoom. The other thing that she does is she's a visual practitioner and does graphic recordings, but she's also an agile guy like me or Danny and helps people to uh, work better together. But that's just one side. We talk about her whole life from the beginning where she grew up to where she decided to live to the way how she stumbled into graphic facilitation. On that, we talk about how she experienced being graphically recorded for the first time and what are things we need to consider when graphic recording. And last but not least, we talk about her new book, which will have the title Be Inspired by Your Environment. And she actually has a plan how she produces this book by traveling Europe and teaching lettering across Europe. And of course, it would not be Heather when she would not do it in a different way. She would like to take the participants outside of the training room into the environment and walk the streets and look for the greatest letters and then practice together. So it's basically a scavenger hunt, how you learn lettering. We will put all dates and seats available in the show notes so that you can join in there and learn directly from Heather. And now you might think, well, Europe is far away. We are in Australia. 
So the point is, we actually also try to bring her to VisConf, which will be, and now it's confirmed, on the 19th of October 2019 in Melbourne again. So I hope that we see Heather Martinez as well in Down Under. Heather, how are you? Good, good morning, Marcel. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you for having me today. Yeah, thanks for being with us. Heather, I just had a look online. I actually had no idea, sorry for that, where Durango is. But then I figured out it really looks like the towns that I really like in Australia as well. So like a country town, which probably had a gold rush or something, like a lot of money at one point. And it's like a beautiful, conserved little town. Are you right now in Durango and how's the living in Colorado there? Oh, yes, I am. Thank you for bringing that up. I love Durango, Colorado. I've lived here on and off for about 25 years. And the living here is very interesting. Um, It definitely has an Old West feel. I have a studio right downtown that overlooks Main Avenue. And on any given day, I can look out the window and see cowboys. Of course, I don't know if they're real cowboys because I think real cowboys are on the ranch, but hippies and uh, tourists and uh, the downtown feel really feels like old town. And there's lots of small uh, mountain towns around us, Silverton, Telluride, um, Uray, little towns that really, really you can feel the... Uh, it's almost like you can hear the spurs as you your own spurs your imaginary spurs as you're walking down the street but it's definitely a high mountain or and high desert living yep yes and i i when i when i lived in australia i uh, really I, I think i didn't told it anyone everyone right now but like i'm i'm was i really enjoy four wheel driving and when i saw like i just looked around on google street view and see those big plateaus and so on it's like this is an amazing place for just hiking and like probably four wheel driving as well so like beautiful country spot aside yeah um, I- I have a four-wheel drive, and Southwest Colorado has the tallest, I think it's 10-mile area in the United States, and so we have a lot of 14,000-foot peaks here. Nice. Very cool. Um, Have you lived there all your life? Have you grown up in Durango, or like you said, on and off? Yeah. So when I was in college, I used to um, come here for the summer to work at, strangely enough, a five-star resort. And you could only get there by uh, the train that runs from, and it's a historic train that runs from Durango to Silverton. It's a coal-driven train or helicopter. So there's no roads that go there. And um, I spent my college summers there. And then after I graduated from uh, college, I decided that's it. I'm moving back to Durango. And there's not much of a market here. So it's really hard to find a job. It's hard to make a living. Um, it's really definitely old west kind of living. So when you say there's not not much work, like you, you have to travel a lot or you work from home, like how do you do that in yeah. today? Yeah, absolutely. So when I when I started this work in graphic facilitation, I realized I'm not going to be able to get any work here. So I traveled a lot. And then I found I was referring a lot of people, uh, a lot of clients, potential clients to graphic recorders from all over the world. I thought, why are you calling me? You've got a graphic recorder right there. I would go to the Mm -hmm. IFBP website and find people all over the world and just refer work out. Um, But now, so what I did is I ended up moving to Washington, D.C. and helping start the Visioneering team. It's a team of visual practitioners. And shortly after the election, I left and my husband and I went on a big trip across the uh, 
North America in our little teardrop trailer. And we decided, well, let's go back home. And so I do a lot of virtual work now. Mm -hmm. And I teach, of course, um, online classes and in-person classes. So I travel for that. And I do travel a lot for work again. Yeah. And you you have then an airport nearby or like, how do you get... Is there... <laughs> yeah, it's a tiny airport. It's got um, two gates. <laughs> so it's really tiny. Yeah. Uh, I think there's three or four airlines and I can get to uh, Denver or Phoenix or Dallas. So I can get to international airports in one flight, but it is an extra hour, uh, just, a, just a little one hour flight to any international airport. Heather, I always like to explore a bit like where you come from, like in, in this way, like of uh, let's talk about time. When you when you look back, when you were a child, do you always like to draw or like does it came much later to you in life? Um, how do you grow up? Yeah. So as a child, um, I did love to draw, but I wasn't very good at it. I just knew I loved it. And I think my first boost of confidence was in the third grade. I won a drawing contest. It was about the environment. And I had just learned about how if you planted trees, that could help keep erosion from happening, both wind and water erosion. So as a small child, I was, I was a little bit of an environmentalist and mm -hmm. I loved to draw trees. It was my favorite thing to draw and landscapes. And I actually think that I manifested my life here in Colorado because in the third grade, I would draw mountains and alpine flowers and I would draw Jeeps. I was a huge Mork and Mindy fan, so I knew I wanted to live in Colorado. And um, sure enough, this is where I ended up. So I think that those first initial drawings really helped me. Uh, I was visioning in some way, I think, as a child. Very nice. Like when I when I think about my drawings, like a drawing came much later to me in life. But when I just think about my drawings, the thing I was drawing were hills because they were mm -hmm. just like an M, like some mm -hmm. arcs. And then the yeah. birds were the same, like just two arcs, like a McDonald's yeah. arc. <laughs> so after you drew this as a child, like mm -hmm. um, what happened then in between living in Durango and like this child drawing? Yeah. I have to tell you, even when I was a kid, I knew where I was in Kansas. I grew up in Leavenworth, Kansas, the yeah. flattest place ever in the middle of the United States. I never felt like I belonged there. And mm -hmm. in the beginning, as a third grader, it wasn't about my environment or my parents or friends or anything. I just didn't really feel called to live there. And um, I'd never seen the mountains before. I didn't see the mountains until I was in college. That's what got me hooked. But I always dreamed of them and I loved pictures of them. And so as a child, I just thought, I can't wait to grow up and get out of here and be somewhere where I can see the land, be a part of the land, and um, it would just be right in front of me. And so for me, when I would draw them, I loved your description about drawing an M for both the, the mountains and the birds because I drew the same picture all the time, little variations, you know, different flowers in different places, but I've always drawn the overlapping of mountains. So there'd be a mountain in front of another mountain in front of another mountain. And when you drive through Southwest Colorado, that's what you see. You see mountain after mountain after mountain, and you're just driving through them. And so as a child, I just knew I didn't belong where I was. And when I first woke up, I was on a Greyhound bus traveling from uh, Leavenworth to Durango, and it was a 24-hour bus ride. 
And I woke up in the morning and there were the mountains and I, that was it. I was hooked. I remember, you know, being so profoundly touched by it. I went, that's it. I, I don't know if I can ever leave. And every time I had to go back, whether it was, I had to go back for another semester of school or I, or I moved back home after graduation, I had this itch that I had to get back there. And I've always had that itch and it's taken me back time and time again. And I don't know which came first, my love for the mountains or drawing them, but I, I do believe in the power of drawing and visualizing what you want out of your life. It's, it's a big part of my personal practice and how I manifest and actually obtain some of the goals that I set for myself. But as a child, it was just, I got to get out of here. And then that, when I got older, those things started happening and it and started coming together. And like, do you do that now with your clients as well? Like you're sitting remote and you, you draw the, like the future states and then is it like yeah. part of your offer? Yeah, it is. Actually, I have them draw it and I want them to, I help describe, I help give them prompts about, you know, where's the location? What does it look like? And when I'm doing some of my coaching work, I do future self work, right? So I take them to their future self and, and help them see and describe who they are and their surroundings and that kind of thing. I believe it's really powerful. And it's like, how do you end up in, in this world of like coaching and then later lettering as well? Like in, yeah. in, in terms like what, what happened in between? Like you moved yeah. to Durango. Yeah. yeah. So I moved to Durango and immediately got involved in the art center there. And I was teaching after school classes to kids. And I, what was, what was my first thing? I, I was trying to make as much art as I could. So I was doing fine art, photography, alternative processes. And eventually I got to the point where I realized I had worked every job in town that I could. I really hit my head on the glass ceiling, working with lots of artists. I was an apprentice for many artists. And a job came up back in my hometown at an art center to become the exhibits and program director. And that to me was my dream job. I had been an intern there. It was called the Carnegie Art Center. And it was my opportunity to have a first real job. And I was able to put together I think at the time it was 24 artists, professional artists that all had their master's and bachelor's degree, and they all wanted to teach at this multidisciplinary art center. And I was in charge of the um, art gallery. And it was my first real job where I got to take all of this great knowledge and all of this wonderful thing and, and give it back to the community. So I did that for a couple of years. And then again, that pull back to Colorado happened. And so I moved back to Southwest Colorado again. And there I started an arts magazine. And as a small child, I, I remember begging my dad if I could have a computer because my typewriter just, I couldn't really do layout on my typewriter. So I was making my own little magazine as a kid. And uh, so later on, I, had, I was a grown up and I created a magazine. I got another job at the art center here. And again, I got to be an exhibits director. And I love the idea of helping be the uh, facilitator or the uh, advocate or administrative person for other people to really express their full potential and especially around their passion and, and art. And so I didn't realize I was coaching artists before I was ever a coach. And one consistent thing throughout my world was that uh, my adult world is that I was also a graphic designer. Mm -hmm. So this was my commercial job that I always had. Mm -hmm. And um, so I went back to graphic design. I was working in a leadership development company. I hated my job. I was really not a graphic designer. I was more like a desktop publisher. I always had my earbuds in watching movies or listening to music. And I took them out one day and I heard a project manager from a couple of cubicles away say, 
we hired a graphic recorder to come into the meeting. And it was incredible because they really, they used their art to help us understand what was going on. And I was like, ah, I have to do that. I don't know what that is. I immediately Googled it, saw Christina Merkley explain her graphic <laughs> history. I signed up for her class, signed up for Alpha Chimp, their online course. And I was at the first IFVP conference that I could go to, which was in Hawaii. And that was in 2011. And once I got into that, I realized that everything I'd ever done, the art, the coaching, working with lots of different people, collaborating, and especially the graphic design. It was like I was tired of being this transactional person that was taking what was happening in meetings and creating a visual and giving it back to them. I wanted to be in the room when these decisions were being made. And um, that changed everything for me. So I try to do as little graphic design as possible and as much graphic recording and working with people at the wall. It's always interesting, like how those different like expertise and uh, just come together, just uh, how mm -hmm. they may click at one point in time. Like it's almost like a colliding yeah. point of some neutrons or so and just makes boom and everything is so clear. Then you find your, find like a, almost your call or something. It's Yeah. I yeah. Think it's I I think you have to be ready for it though, yep. you know? Mm -hmm. So when I was 25, I remember when I moved back to Kansas um, after being an artist for a while, I remember thinking, I failed. I failed as an artist. I didn't make a living at it. So maybe when I'm in my 60s or something, I'll, I'll be really smart and I'll have gained all of this life wisdom and I'll really get to do what I want to do again. And I think it was a limiting belief because it wasn't, but a few years later that I actually started pulling all of those different skills together. And I think that when we can do that as uh, both as visual practitioners and just as people is see our strengths and um, build on those strengths and start to think about, again, pair that with visioning, things start to come together in really interesting ways. I have a question. Like for me, when I teach visual facilitation or visualization in the beginning, I make the point very clear that I'm not an artist, like right. um, that I'm using this skill and I teach visual facilitation or facilitation or visualization in in this way that everyone can learn it, that it's not, you don't have to be a creative person to mm -hmm. basically put down the point that everyone can learn it. Everyone has access to yeah. it and it's a craftsmanship you, you do. Is this like, how do you talk about that? Um, yeah. Can everyone learn to be an artist? Like I just yeah. found a very nice article on LinkedIn before from you. Do you think that everyone can be an artist? Like yeah. what's your point there? I do. I do. And I think it's a personal choice. First of all, I have to say, I don't really teach visual facilitation mm -hmm. um, because I don't know that I can stand uh, shoulder to shoulder to some of you professionals who do this um, because I, 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 my passion is in other things. I teach lettering and teach other things. But I also don't think I really use my art as much in my final product as I do about the way that I think about it. Um, mm -hmm. But to back to your question, I do believe anybody can learn how to be an artist. I do believe anybody can learn how to be a visual practitioner. And I don't think those two things go hand in hand at all. In fact, I think my art has been a limitation to the type of visual practitioner work, especially the products that I put out, um, because I'm very self-conscious of my drawing. I can sit down and draw something not super hyper-realistic, but pretty realistic mm -hmm. in a very short amount of time. But when it comes to doing that rapid capture in front of clients, none of that applies. None of it. In fact, the idea of drawing a cartoon or a stick figure really kind of scares me. 
it, it doesn't work that way. And so I have to unlearn what I know to relearn to be able to do that job. That's very interesting. Yeah. And I'm, on the other hand, I'm almost very hesitant to do graphic recordings then, especially in my early days, because I saw all those um, like studied illustrators who basically drew the landscape out of the blue. And I'm just... Yeah have my 20 visual vocabulary <laughs> words yeah. that I they yeah. can draw and I, and I just try to capture it. Then, exactly. So yeah. I, I always find this um, uh, very interesting. Martin Hausmann from Picablo said it once to me, like, like the people come from different areas into the field of visual facilitation. The either people are visual or the other ones come from facilitation. Right. And for me, the other side is always, is then the scary side. And it, in the same way, it's it's a relief because everyone is on the same page, right? You just have right. to learn a different fa uh, part of it. Yeah, that's yeah. so true. I've, I've, I agree with that. And I think there's a third component. And I think we saw that in UVIS Berlin. At least it was a huge yeah. impact on me in, in Berlin is that I was meeting people like yourself. I was meeting scrum masters and agile coaches and people in healthcare and education that I thought, whoa, they're coming from all over. So maybe they don't have the facilitation coaching side that I know of, or maybe they don't have the artistic side um, that a lot of illustrators that are getting picked up right out of art school to do this work and they have to learn how to listen, um, there's a whole nother group of people that are coming into this work and it's people who are identifying that visuals have impact in meetings. Exactly. And so while they may not be a facilitator or uh, an artist, they're just saying, I know that if I get up and write down what people say and, and draw it out, it's going to make more sense and we can all get to where we want to go um, faster. Absolutely, no. absolutely right. Yeah. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. I have another thing on my list I need to do before I forget. Like this yeah. morning, I had a, now it's morning for you, but this morning <laughs> in Australia, I had a very nice call with Matt McGain and I should greet you. Yeah. And uh, I want to thank you again for supporting us at Viscount with your um, like discount codes and your lettering uh, website to, mm -hmm. to pass on out to the attendees. Mm -hmm. And yeah. he told me that I should ask you about how you got into graphic facilitation in the first place, because it seems like a very interesting story. It has something to do with street arts, if I'm not wrong. Can you talk about it? <laughs> um, are you talking about... In, so my story that I just told about how I took my headphones on, that's where the very, very start was, where it kind of opened my eyes that there was actually a thing. Yeah. But I will say what has influenced my confidence and what has made me want to keep doing this work was studying with uh, graffiti artists in Washington, D.C., and so being able to work with graffiti artists in Washington, D.C., I realized, wow, they work quickly. Their work, for the most part, is really legible, and they can break things down, the letters and the forms that they're using, really, really quickly. And so I studied with a couple of master graffiti artists. Some of them teach classes. Some of them I kind of learned through a network of people. I never did illegal graffiti, I have to say that. Well, maybe some small tags, but not spray paint. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, those acrylic markers that we have are wonderful for uh, putting your tag out there. So I was really inspired by how quickly they could work. And when I asked them questions about how did you learn how to do this lettering style, 
they all came back to people that came before them, right? So they they were learning from the masters that came before them that were either other graffiti artists or they were calligraphers or they were sign painters because hmm. Calligraphers, of course, study form and they go very slowly. Sign painters have to work very quickly um, because they're they're getting paid by the sign, not by the hour. And of course, graffiti artists, they got to work so fast that they could go to jail if they don't. So the graffiti artists are really what made me decide, okay, I need to probably get away from working um, in like the government work and solving all these complex, hard problems. And um, while I share a little bit of what you do, I'm, a, I'm actually a certified scrum master. I don't really enjoy that work. I want to work big. I want to work bold. And I want other people to feel that exhilaration also of working big and working bold and, and actually doing it confidently. So it goes mm-hmm. back to what you said around um, anybody can do it. I really believe that. And especially with lettering, most of us come with a whole lifetime worth of, we've been writing letters. So my job is to break some of those habits that you've had, turn them into things that you can use while you're at the wall. And in the process, I found that people go, oh, this is hard. And I go, oh, well, I don't want to make it hard. I don't want to make it painful. So let's build your confidence up. And so I'm a little bit of a lettering cheerleader when you take a class from me, because I want people <laughs> to feel good about what they're doing, because it's really kind of easier than they think. Very cool. Yes. Yeah. And whenever you, you come to Melbourne, I give you a city Yay. tour around this graffiti art because Melbourne is famous on the world for street art. So uh-huh. they are amazing lanes and they, they're almost like news, newspapers. They change like daily or every second day you can walk <sighs> the same lane. They always smell completely like the new paint. And you oh. actually better go with a, a like a a gas mask or something through it like it's it's really <laughs> and they're always like work there and you can watch them so it's a very very nice thing to look so at so is it legal in melbourne or they just have areas where people can make murals well it's part of the uh, culture there so yeah. i've i think oh. most of the walls that are used there are legal today i think that that's okay Probably they haven't hadn't started this way, but today there are tourists going down and up the streets with a tour right. guide. So it's it's probably legal today, I would say. Yeah, at least That's legalized. So cool. or, yeah, yeah, or in some areas, maybe yes. there's areas they get to go. And you know, Berlin has that wonderful. There was a whole graffiti village there, and and I took a a tour while I was um, mm-hmm. at Uvis there in 2014. And that was a great little intro to being able to study it. And when I was in DC, and I love that it's legal in Melbourne because in DC it was not legal, but they would have, um, they would get sponsorships. They would get areas where they would have a graffiti day and they would bring artists from all over the world to come in and work. And you could sign up, you'd have to contact them. And I did, I, I signed up and nobody got back to me. And so just showed up with all my gear. I have a bunch of acrylic markers and some small cans of spray paint, but not a lot. I usually mainly work in acrylic. And um, so I showed up and I said, Hey, can I have a spot at the wall? And they, he, the guy kind of laughed and he goes, okay, don't hate me for this, but I didn't get your email and I will give you a spot at the wall, but it's this piece at the very end and it's like two by two feet so you're not really going to get to do a mural and I'm thinking that's fine because I get to stand next to all of these other great graffiti artists so he gives me this spot and as I'm walking down I'm passing 
artists from all over the world that some of them, by the time I got there, they were already done. And some of them were trying to make, you know, masterpieces. They figured, wow, I have all day. I'm not going to get caught. I'm really going to go for this. And I met some really incredible people, did a lot of what we call slap swapping. So we were trading stickers. Mm -hmm. And so I collected a lot of great stickers from graffiti artists. And I was in the middle of drawing my, my little character. He's called Meep. And it's a robot that just speaks in the language of binary love. So he speaks in binary, but all of his messages are in love. And, um, and I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm writing out binary code and it's saying special messages and stuff. And this guy comes up next to me and he goes, I can't believe that I get a place at the wall. And his, his place at the wall was like one foot by two feet. <laughs> so he, he came in after I did and he's sitting there like moving the dirt and, and pulling up weeds and trying to get space at this wall. And um, his name is Cloud Talking, and you can find him on Instagram. And we've kept in touch since then. And I, we still since I sent him stickers and buy some of his goods. And, and he, he, to me, even though he was just starting out as a graffiti artist, I thought, oh, this is really cool. We get to be on this journey together. So I just love that in Melbourne, it's part of the culture. I have to come now. I have to see it because yes. I love being inspired by my environments. Yeah. And uh, this is an amazing idea because we run VizConf again in 2019. Yay! We, we <laughs> don't have a um, date yet, but it's probably October 2019. Oh. And that would be amazing to have you there. Okay, you I would do a lettering that. class. How else about that? We could do I, a pre-conference yes, workshop about lettering. I think the people in Melbourne would like, or Australia-wide would like it. I hope Love you don't it. strike this from the audio. I hope this really happens. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm not cutting out anything there. This is an invitation. <laughs> oh, I would love that. And I'm sorry that I didn't get to make it this year. It was one of those things where just yeah. getting to Denmark was such a big deal. Uh -huh. And traveling internationally, I know it can be really easy for some, but it's not been an easy thing for me to find the resources to be able to do that. And so, um, yeah, if I can teach a pre-con, that might be just enough to get me there. Yes, cool. Thank you. Another thing I have learned from Matt, and that's like the, the other question, is like your experience when we talked about graphic recording. You have worked as a graphic recorder, of course, but then like you recently have changed the perspective of being graphically recorded. And Matt's told me, like, ask her about that because that has changed some in many ways, like how she thinks about graphic recording. And I think that's yeah. something really interesting as I think a lot of the listeners are doing graphic recordings. I would like to put the courage up to do them. Like, mm -hmm. how... How was that the experience? What what was the story behind that? Thank you for saying that. Thanks, Matt, for paying attention. That's actually a really recent <laughs> Facebook. Yeah, yeah, well, it's a really recent Facebook post that just yes. came up like, I think yes. yesterday or something or the day before. And so when I was at UViz this summer in Denmark, I did a breakout session called How to Letter Like a Sign Painter. And it was hugely popular. There was a waiting list. And it was so exciting because the people that were in there were excited to be in there. And I had um, a graphic recorder. Her name was Kate, or I'm sorry, Kat Howe. And she, uh, I believe she lives in Amsterdam now, but she's an American. She lived in Washington, D.C. at the same time I did, I think, and we never met, which makes me sad. But she graphic recorded my breakout session. And that, even though it was a graphic recorder for me in front of other visual practitioners, it was still a little scary. I was like, oh, is she going to be able to capture it? And how would you capture it? And I have graphic recorded for calligraphers and I've sketch noted in classes, calligraphy classes, but I wasn't sure how she was going to do it. And I didn't know her very well. And so I was a bit nervous. And a couple of things that came up for me, both as I was sharing and afterwards, as I thought, 
okay, first of all, let her do her job. Don't try to tell her what to do. Um, but beforehand, I, I did say I'm going to share a lot of techniques. I did kind of outline um, the approach and how long I was going to spend on certain things so she could kind of have that as a guide so that there's a rhythm. And so that wasn't like one of those got you's like, oh, I'm a graphic recorder too and I want you to fail. It was more like, I want you to succeed and here's mm. what I'm going to share. And then I gave her a bunch of, uh, I even gave her some tools and things that I was going to be using to help with that process and even the handouts from the class and stuff so she could have that to refer to. And then as she was drawing, I, it was, I was really torn between, I'd really love to be in the audience and just watch her, <laughs> but I can't, so I have to present. And so I did, um, I let her do her thing. And right before I looked at her chart to give her some feedback, I all of a sudden felt really nervous. Did she graphic record everything correctly? Did she capture what I really wanted people to understand? And is what she created, is it going to support or hurt my brand as a presenter? Mm. Mm -hmm. And so all of a sudden, it wasn't me, another visual practitioner in the room working with other visual practitioners. It was, I'm a presenter. I'm kind of an outsider. I want to make sure that the people that see this product, because I knew it was going to go out and everybody in the rest of the conference would see it, I want it to represent what happened in the room. Mm -hmm. And I think that feeling alone is one that we as graphic recorders don't know. We, we don't put our, ourselves in the shoes of the presenter all the time. We're too busy thinking about ourselves and our own limiting beliefs, or we're kind of nervous, or we think we have it figured out, and, or we think we know what um, the client or the audience needs before we get up there and go. There's so many other things we're thinking about. And so for me, it really changed how I approach, and that was just the summer, but it has changed the way that I approach my speakers, making sure that you know, everything is, is, um, that before I start, you know, what's the main point you want to get across? Yes. Um, and then also we, I invite them, will you please come and look at my chart afterwards just to see if there's anything I've left out or if I've, I've recorded something incorrectly. And can you let me know if there's anything you want me to add? I don't like necessarily adding things after the experience because especially if it's a meeting, because people might say, oh, there's other things happening after the meeting when I leave. I want to build trust with my audience. But if it's a graphic recording and it's a general um, presentation, then I will say, is there anything else you'd like me to add? And sometimes it might just be as simple as a you know, contact information for them, a, a, you know, their social media handle or something like that, or a, a link to their website or a book that they've written. So yeah, it, it really has helped me become, I think, more compassionate for those that we record for. That's not just about us. It's about them. This is really, really good, great because, like, when I when I think about it, like you it, putting going onto the stage and recording for someone, you become a bit like vulnerable, and in mm-hmm. in you make yourself vulnerable being there. But at the same time, you you the same is true for the presenter as well. You record him how what he what he is doing, and and this is really really nice uh, to reflect from the other side of that. And mm-hmm. I wonder, like, do you now then go with the presenter over your drawings? They can I highlight something that's more important or that I didn't emphasize strong enough or something. Like, do you do a review now, or what is the what is the lessons you or how do you how do you approach it now? Yeah, I try to. I will tell you that sometimes presenters come off stage and they're on to the next thing. You know, mm. if they're a really busy, important person that's not planning on, they're only going to be there for the keynote and then they're on a plane to somewhere else, they literally just wave at me and leave the room. <laughs> I mean, I can't control that, right? Um, and if I can follow up with them with a copy and say, here's what I've done, if you'd like more like it, or if you need 
my services, that's a great way to follow up with them. But if I do have the time, I will. And I will say that for the most part, their eyes are kind of glazed over. They're kind of on their own high, especially, for instance, this summer, I graphic recorded for Mike Gold, and he was one of the keynote speakers at the International Calligraphy Conference. It was called Seattle Letters. And it was the perfect graphic recording meets calligraphy world opportunity because he was trying to build a bridge between what's happening with all of the very traditional calligraphers that were in the room. It was 400 people. And what's happening out in the world with all of these new calligraphers, contemporary calligraphers that are showing up in the world. And graphic recording... I don't think I could have graphic recorded anybody else at that conference. Mike Gold was so inviting and his subject matter was perfect. And when it was, when we were finished, over half the people rushed the stage, both to talk to him and to see the graphic recording. And I couldn't believe it. I thought it it was literally the scariest moment in my career to write quickly in front of calligraphers, master calligraphers, professional calligraphers, I thought. And I got really scared. I literally, during the day, I had a bit of a breakdown. I had to have my mentor, um, Carol Dubosh, talk me off the ledge. I threw up before the session. I mean, I was just a mess. And then I did it. And then when I was finished, people came down and said, wonderful things. Like, not only is that beautiful, and I love that you used Neuland hand, because that's very common with calligraphers, but you did it so quickly, and where did it come from, and how did you know? And so they were really asking about the process. Mm -hmm. So for those graphic recorders out there that are like, I'm really scared to do this, it's like, there are professional calligraphers and illustrators that are too. There's, it's the other side of the coin that say, I have no idea how you even did that. But the idea is, is that it's really scary to get up there and do that. And the presenter afterwards, he came over and I said, okay, I just, I did it all in black and white. And I said, I can go back in and add color, but you talked so fast. And he had like hundreds of slides, like at least a hundred slides. And in 45 minutes, which is crazy, he was flipping through them so fast. I said, I couldn't draw what any of these artists created because it's not mine to draw. So I just wrote down information. So if you want, I'll go back through and add color. And he said, don't. He said, don't add color. I don't want to distract away from the lettering or the content. And I thought, wow, what great feedback from the speaker. Mm -hmm. And I got a call a few months later from the publisher of a magazine called Letter Arts Review. And it's like the premier magazine in the calligraphy world. And they said, we want to publish your graphic recording you did for Mike Gold. And I was blown away. I, I, I was like, this is a dream come true. I've always wanted to be in that magazine and knew that I never would ever get in that magazine for my calligraphy alone. But I got in that magazine because I built a bridge between what we do as visual practitioners into the calligraphy world. And that's what Mike Gold was trying to do in his talk was build bridges. And I thought, okay, I'll send him the, my graphic recording and I'll answer a few of his questions. And I thought it was going to be like a two inch wide picture with a couple of, you know, a tagline and a little bit of information. It ended up being a two page spread, a full page of my graphic recording and a full page of me telling the story about my experience, graphic recording, Mike Gold and the rest of the magazine, a majority of the rest of the magazine was Mike Gold. He had like a 36 page article in that magazine. It was huge. And again, this is where you can as a visual practitioner, envision what your life can be and start to draw that out. And then you got to be ready when opportunities come up. Because I simply got the question on the second day I was at the conference, Mike Gold's giving a thing. We know you're a graphic recorder. Do you want to graphic record it? I didn't know till like two days before. Wow. 
crazy. Yeah. And for visual practitioners, most of them are thinking, what's letter arts review? They don't care. And for most calligraphers, they're like, what's the scribbling on this piece of paper? They don't care. But for a moment, for a couple hundred people, we made a connection. And I, I just think that's, if we as visual practitioners can do that, a little bit of that every day, we're really making a difference in the world. This has then led you to your website, let's lettertogether.com. Or mm -hmm. like, did it happen later? Like, oh, no. on a timeline? Like, yeah, so let's lettertogether.com. It was an idea that I'd had. I knew that I wanted to have some kind of online something someday, but I didn't mm -hmm. know what the subject was going to be. I didn't have the content yet. I just liked it as a vehicle. And after I left Washington, D.C., my husband and I went on a six month trip, road trip. And well, we took a year off, but we took a six month road trip and we went to um, three different artist residencies and they were month long. At the first artist residency I went to, I focused completely on decompressing from Washington, D.C. and making art. The second one was in Vernon, British Columbia at the Katani Center. And um, this gave me a month. I created Let's Letter Together, and I focused mm -hmm. purely on lettering, mm -hmm. but specifically for visual practitioners. And I started the class Unlock Your Neuland Markers, which mm -hmm. you can still go on today. It's free, and it teaches you four lettering styles using Neuland Markers, and you can get the downloads from no the Neuland website as well. And at that time, I was also designing some of their products like the uh, hand lettering learning pad, both flip chart, and they turned that into a small to-go pad, which I think is brilliant. I have them. I love them. Mm -hmm. And so at that point is when I started saying, okay, I'm going to take lettering and I'm going to take this, this art side of me and I'm going to build a bridge to the commercial side for visual practitioners. And I'd been teaching lettering to visual practitioners at a couple of IFVPs, and I did some meetups in, in Washington, D.C., and I found that that was my strength. And so I thought, this is just my vehicle. I'm going to use online courses to help uh, put that out in a bigger field. And I launched it, and literally nothing happened for like six months. <laughs> I had a few people every month maybe, maybe sign up and it was like, okay, this isn't going to work. And so like with any good business plan, I also wrote an exit strategy. And so I told myself, I'm going to give myself 18 months to do this let's letter together thing. And in 18 months, if it doesn't meet my goals, I had metrics around money, I had goals around audience size, and then always at the basis of everything I do, it's values-based decision-making. So it was like, am I doing the right thing for myself and for the field by doing this? I don't want to take away. I don't want to make money so much off of artists as I want to improve the lettering in the field. And I was able to meet everything but my financial goals in 18 months. So 18 months has come. And now I'm writing my book. It's a lettering book. And I was supposed to have it done a year ago. And so I've given my, I've been gentle with myself and said, look, if you would have gotten this book done a year ago, then you might have met your financial goals. So I've decided I'm going to finish the book and then I'm going to give myself another 18 months. And if the, and I have all new goals uh, for this next 18 months, I have lots of ideas. And from there, I'll see, do I keep going or does it just, is it just kind of live out there for people who need it? I so. think with release dates of books, you're in good company. Like we had Brandy <laughs> Agarbeck on the show and she was like, yeah. oh my God, I want to release this. Like the first book was easy. The second one takes me all my energy and the same, like if it takes longer, it takes longer. Yeah. 
Yes, she was a huge inspiration at the very start of my work, uh, for sure, with the Brandy Festo and and a lot of my visioning work. But when when I heard her, I was literally working on letsletter.together.com and I was starting to really put together my book. I heard her say, for your first book, make a small book, make something simple and easy. That Mm. was one of the lessons she had learned. And so I came up with a a zine instead of a a full-on book. I came up with how to letter like a sign painter. And that's a little zine that I came out with and I gave away it and also sold at UViz. And it's on my website and you can you can get just the online and don't have to buy the zine or you can just buy the zine and not get the online. And that helped me create this next book that I'm working on now and should be done in the next month or so, it helped me break down the chapters like they're little zines. Yeah. And then once I was able to get that first zine done, I went, oh my gosh, I can I can put this book together for sure. And so that's going to be my approach for this book. And since I've started this book, I've come up with a couple more ideas for other books because it can't all be in one book. At some point, you have to stop and publish it <laughs> yeah. and then move on it's like it, or it'll never finish it right yeah and i i heard once i think it was from a book from 37 signals that mike Grody illustrated i think it was remote or something uh-huh. that it yeah. is one drawing from mike Grody, and the other side is is a story which was a blog post i think mm-hmm. and so it's like blog post after blog post on the blog like and this turned into a book so it was more like curated at the end and edited while mm. the content was already like written. Yes. So this way you release regular and it's like the, we are both like working the agile field. So it's like re- release often and regular and get feedback. And uh, you, you don't go this through this big process. I think it's super smart that Brandy said, like having something small released. Right? Yes, like, absolutely. And you know, as a agile coach that the waterfall approach doesn't work, right? Yeah. That's what I mean by, I can't just produce a book that has everything in it. Now that I've created this book and thinking about what Brandy said and me using that to apply to a zine, my next book literally is already laid out in this book. Like the layout would be very, very similar. The content would change. And mm-hmm. so now I just have to go and... Um, should I share what I think my next book idea is? Please go. Oh, okay. Then I'm, mm. this is the first time I've ever shared it publicly on your show. And that is, it's really about being inspired by your environment. So uh, making letters inspired by your environment. So this summer and in Denmark, I did a lettering tour and I took people on a tour around Copenhagen and we found letters and I taught, I think, three to five different lettering styles and had an exemplar um, of letters we found based on how to break them down. And since I'm going to Europe in 2019 and visiting, let's see, London, Amsterdam, Cologne, and maybe even Melbourne in the fall, I would love to do lettering tours and then whatever exemplars and um, lessons that I learned from being on the streets, those go into the book so that even if you can't come to those places with me, you can get my book and all of my street notes on how to create letters inspired by your environment. This yeah. is really cool. And I think Cologne, and I uh, know Cologne pretty well because I studied there. It's uh-huh. an amazing place to to go around and just to like to have little cafes on the river or something just to find like some letters. I think yeah. it's an amazing idea. It's and, incredible where you can yeah, find you them. You bring the people together and it's... I look yeah. forward. Nice. Yeah. Yay. Yeah, I will try to be there, by the way. I just got an invitation <laughs> to come uh-huh. to Cologne. So oh, good. I, if I can make it, I will be there. And we Wonderful. Meet um, Wonderful. 
You can show me where the greatest letters are in Cologne. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I should do some research before. Yeah, but then I can. Yes, I do. We need to get from the from the Picablo office if the training is there to the city. Uh-huh. Get a bit, like because it's more like an industrial area, but maybe we uh-huh. find some letters there as well. Let's see. I have some secrets, and that'll all come out in the book. But I have secrets on how to find the best letters, and you're going to find them in the most unique places. You're not going to believe it. You're going to be like, "Really? It's I like, didn't expect that. I thought I'd had to go to somewhere central." It's like, no. It's like the visual practitioner's geocaching. Yes. It's like it's like the the um, scavenger hunt. Yes. Yeah. Cool. I love it. You just said something and uh, when you were talking about your uh, starting your business that I think I would like to explore a bit further because I think some of the listeners uh, maybe got inspired by by your work, our work, like others' work and mm-hmm. maybe start their own uh, practice in, in some way. And you mm-hmm. were very organized. It seemed like you, you and you said one thing that I've never heard before and let, let me explore that. You said value-based decision model. What is that? Yeah. So I so a value-based decision model is yep. literally where you create a decision model. For those of you who don't know, you've got a couple of different things that you're thinking about. Where What do I want to do? And you create your own criteria. And those criteria become filters of, it could be like deciding what kind of jobs you want to take or what kind of, uh, where you want to focus your work. But it's based on your values. So mm-hmm. when I teach, I have a, a, a coaching model specifically for artists, though I've used it for other people as well. It's called Art Career Theorem, and it's a value-based decision model. And what that means is I take people through the process of learning what their values truly are, and then I take them through a series of exercises where they can use those values to create their own decision model and then embody that model, meaning you really understand the body, the model so well that this isn't just for like big lifetime or business decisions. These are the decisions that you make moment by moment every day of your life so that you're living by your values, you're living in line with your purpose, and you feel really, I mean, it's fulfilling. You don't feel like you're actually chasing after goals. You're actually manifesting them just as quickly as you're thinking of them because it's all value-based. So what does that mean or where did it come from for me? Values are, can be simple. It could be love, family, work, ambition, success, or just, you know, connection, relationships. Mm -hmm. And the way that it started for me is that the visioneering team in Washington, D.C., Brian and I, uh, we were the two people, you know, it's sort of one of the, I don't know if you've seen the video of the crazy guy that's dancing in the uh, field and then pretty soon the next guy comes and he dances and they're crazy and then they all come. So it was sort of like that. And so Brian's the first crazy guy dancing (laughs) and I show Mm -hmm. up and I'm like, okay, this is great. And we start building this team. And the first offsite that we had, it was, we call it a norming offsite, like, you know, form, norm, storm, Mm -hmm. perform. And it was a forming offsite for our team. And we started it out based on values. How are we going to make decisions based on our values? So the entire visioneering team is a value-based team. We have values, we have decision models, and then we have um, regular rhythms and uh, rituals that we do to keep us as a high-performing team. And so I'd already developed this as a model for my coaching. And of course, Brian and I both read the book, The Power of Two which is a great book on how to have partnerships, how to work with other people. And um, it was literally just the two of us. We didn't know who else was going to be on the team. In fact, um, other than Dean Meyer, who was the first person who found the client, and we later again hired him on um, part-time, 
we didn't know who else was going to be on the team. And everybody that's on the team now are people we'd never met before they became on the team. So it was, it was really interesting. But the decision, the values-based piece is for me, the way that it started was through this model that I created back, I think in 2014. And it became very real and living inside of me when um, I had sat down and I did my values in 2016 is when, when I had this huge shift. And I met with my astrologer and she was giving me this annual astrology reading and I was graphic recording it really large on the wall. And all of a sudden I felt this deep sense of responsibility to the graphic recording field. And she didn't say anything about graphic recording or any of that. But for some reason, I felt like I had something to contribute. And I didn't know what it was yet, but I have to do good work. Like this, I'm not just playing around here. This isn't just fun. Like I really need to do something with this work and it needs to be meaningful. And I had written my values at the top of the chart just to remind me um, so that all this great information would be in one place. And I realized that the values that I had were not going to get me there. The values that I had served me um, as a creative person and as a listener and maybe as a coach, but it didn't really help me take responsibility for um, really contributing both to my clients and my family and my friends and, you know, the field. And it was sort of like, whoa, I thought I really understood my values. So I reflected on what my astrologer told me. I reflected really on how I felt this deep sense of responsibility as a visual practitioner. And I reassessed my values. And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. How can you change your values? But I did. And then I changed my decision model based on my values. And from that point forward, I felt like I was really living my purpose in a way that I'd never done before. Can I ask you, like, how you come from the values to the decision model? Like, yeah. okay, one of my value in life is like friends or like connection and family. Like mm -hmm. something, it, it, like I was traveling around the world and Australia and at one point I felt something's missing. I had enough money, I had enough time, but something was missing. And for me it was, oh my God, when I got a call from a good friend, it's like, this is really important. So for in from this point, it was like a really important moment for me. Friendship was the main thing for me that drives it. And when I came to uh, like call our company Visual Friends and I told my partner, And she said, that makes total sense. There was no question about good or bad. It's just this makes sense. Yeah. And I'm actually wondering what my values are, like mm -hmm. other than that, and, and what decision model I have. What yeah. do you mean by decision model and how do I create that? <laughs> Let, let's walk us through yeah. that. Yeah, well, this is art career theorem for me. And it's, it's mm -hmm. so this is what it is. And so for me, once you know your values, so there's lots of different ways you can find out what your values are. You know, you can mm -hmm. soul search and all of that, but it can be as simple as sitting down with, um, there's some online like lists of value words mm -hmm. and to do a sort. And there's a card uh, set by Kuzner's, I think it's Kuzner and Paws, was it Kuzner's and Posner? Ooh, I'm sorry, I butchered mm -hmm. the name, but it looks like a deck of cards and there's a different word on each one. But the idea is that you sort out these values and you judge or discern or decide mm -hmm one word over the other, which is more important to you, this or this, this or mm -hmm. this. And you sort it down. And I like to sort it down between three and five, just three and five words. That's it. Mm -hmm. And some people, they can, they can flip it out and do it in a matter of minutes. Sometimes it takes people hours. Sometimes they have to do it and then come back to it and review it again. Um, but you just do a value sort. 
So starting there. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a, I think I have a blog on my website about this that might be on LinkedIn too. So you think it jumps from values to decision model? Not true. The values do play a part in how you make decisions because you have to really feel like, okay, is this decision that I'm being, uh, that I have to address, does it align with my values? But that part that you just discussed about feeling like, okay, you have everything. And then all of a sudden this phone call meant more than anything else you were doing. Now the missing link between the values and the decision model is where are you really putting your focus? Because you can have values and you can have a decision model and never use either one of them. And this is where we start really integrating the change. And that's something that I'm really focused on both for me and for my um, coaching clients is that you know, you can jump from how to do this and how to do that all your life. You're always looking for self-help or the next best thing. But then if you never put it into practice, it's never going to really do you any good. It's like buying books, but never reading them, right? Mm -hmm. So the middle piece is that focus. And it's as simple as goal setting. Now, goal setting kind of seems kind of like, okay, well, yeah, I set goals, no problem. But there's different ways you can set goals. So the way I started out were smart goals, right? Are they smart goals? You know, are they time measurable, all of that. Then I got into the current future state. And this is the part that I use in our career theorem is that we write out, you know, your current state and your future state and what are the things you're going to do in order to get there. And I have a whole series of exercises around um, delineating what do you have to do that's really important that for just survival. And this is based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, do we have safety, psychological safety, love and belonging, and then that self-actualization. And so I say currently in your life, what are the things that you're doing in your life to obtain all of these things? And then how do you want to, in, you know, I use the term a lot, level up, how do you want your future state to look like? And sometimes, of course, the the very basic things, you're always going to have to do those. And I think people forget, oh, I have to pay the rent. I have to do, like they forget some of their responsibilities because all they want to obtain is this self-actualization piece of, oh, this is my big, hairy, audacious goal. I want to get there. And then they never get there because it's too big and they're too bogged down in the things that they have to do for day to day. So we take each of those individually and say, okay, we're going to still have to make time for these. And so there's all these exercises around time management and things like that, that I bring into the model that help you get from your current state to your future state based on your values, and after you've created this decision model um, that you've embodied. That's a very important part of my process is that I help people embody, meaning you can physically feel when you a decision comes up and how you're going to react to it. I think for the most part, most of us walk around and we think our, all of our decisions happen in our heads in, using our central nervous system. But our enteric nervous system, our gut, is literally an entire nervous system. It's, it's a series of nerves that are around our intestines that tell us, give us a lot of great information. So I use that embodiment process to help people create a decision model based on their values. But that key missing element is right in the middle. And it's one that we say, oh yeah, I set my goals. It's like, I have a bunch of exercises that I'll take you through that'll help you really, really get to them so that you can implement and you can integrate all of this in a way that it actually works. That sounds really cool. <laughs> I the hope it makes find sense. More of it, like... <laughs> I hope that made sense. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, well, where where, do, where yeah. can people find it? Let's put it in the show notes. 
Yeah. You know, just contact me. (laughs) It's so my, the model is called Art Career Theorem and it's about asking questions. It's inquiry, right? So I'm a appreciative inquiry facilitator. So I use mostly appreciative inquiry questions throughout the entire model. And then the model itself is values-based decision-making. So I, I do that. But that model is, is, it's really for artists. I mean, I've done it with corporate directors, uh, directors and agencies, corporate business people, and even a plumber. I used it on a plumber once. It was really great. But that art career theorem is is my offering. I haven't done, I've taught workshops and I've done one-to-one with artists, but I haven't made that a huge offering in my practice because I really didn't feel like I could stand up again, shoulder to shoulder to the coaches in our field to actually coach other people in our field. So it's not something I've pushed to visual practitioners, but I will say that I'm working on hopefully getting my certification as a visual coach through Christina Merkley's Shift It program. And that Shift It program is one that I've used um, for nearly seven years now and has been a huge part of my process. So I'll be offering both of those things. I'll be offering offering the Shift It process um, if I get certified. I'm still working on that. And then also Art Career Theorem. And you have a blog post, like if you go to linkedin.com and then... Yeah, you can go to you can find me on LinkedIn and you can Next just second. go to heathermartinez.com. That is my blog, but it's like everybody else, it's not always up to date, but you can read some of my older stuff there and and I have some pretty great articles about how to say no so you can say yes <laughs> to the things you love. So that that goes around to decision model stuff. So there's some stuff on there about art career theorem, but I believe that the real magic happens in the one-to-one sessions and when I can help people draw out what they want their future life to be. So how much time do you, like if you if you split your day, like how much is it like you do one-on-one coaching and how much time you do like your lettering classes now? Is yeah, that's a great or? question. No, yeah. every day is different. Every week yeah. is different. It all depends on the project that I'm working on. So right now I'm working on my book and mm-hmm. I've, I've kept a couple of my um, one-to-one students going. I don't do a lot of coaching right now. I teach a workshop uh, locally and then people sign up afterwards. It hasn't been a huge piece of what I've do. I've been doing it for years, but it's just not been a big piece. I would say lettering is the biggest part right now. I probably spend three to four hours a day doing lettering students, virtual students. So just like you and I are on this audio call, we're on Zoom, but just Mm -hmm. using the audio recording, I actually have students dial in. Uh, We do video both on our face and I have them dial in with their phone using like a clamp so that I can see them right and they can see me right and we letter together. And I spend a couple hours a day doing that with people all over the world. I love it. I feel like I'm connected to our field and our community. I spend a lot of my time learning. So I'm constantly listening to webinars and podcasts and taking online courses. I'm a huge fan of Christina Merkley's work. I've taken almost all of her classes. So I'm always online taking workshops and trying to be connected to uh, the community in some way. But then I spend a lot of time lettering. And I a lot of people ask me about practice. Oh, do you practice a lot? I'm like, I put it to work immediately. So as soon as I learn a lettering style, I immediately start writing thank you notes or putting it on a flip chart or integrating it into a future graphic recording, put it to work as soon as possible. So I don't have time to sit down and practice. I might do a couple of warm-ups, but I get so many ideas for... Um, products or classes. And I test a lot of those out in my in-person classes. And in I have an online um, class called Level Up Your Lettering 
I, I used to call it online, but I want to really say it's virtual because it's most of it is, I mean, it's virtual live. And so I test out a lot of new ideas with my students and I go, Hey, here's a, here's a new product. Um, try it. Let's see if it works. Do you like it? And then sometimes it ends up just being a freebie I give away, or it becomes part of a class that I teach, or it will probably be something that's in my book or a future book. Yeah. Yeah. So like I'm constantly the, iterating. <laughs> in, yeah. in this way of uh, applying it, like the, this is the same what we say, like we, uh, like our training, the Picablo training we run in Australia and New Zealand is, is like a two days program. And I always say like the third day of the training is the most important one. And people then wonder, is there something tomorrow that I, my flight is tonight? Like what, what, what do I go wrong? Yeah. It's like, this is the day when you're back at work, put it into practice. Yes. Use it to write a flip chart note, to invite everyone for Friday, wind down, drinks, whatever. Yep draw something with what you just learned and you will Absolutely. see the result and the, the feedback you get. Like don't just leave here and have what a nice two days and just yeah. not use it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I give my students lots of challenges. Um, I found that online courses are a lot like books. People buy them and don't use them. Mm -hmm. And I believe very strongly. And I learned that this year. It's like, why are people all buying this stuff? But then I'm not seeing it on social media. I don't know if they're using it in their work. They're not telling me anything. It's very one-sided like a book. And so my goal in 2019 and really around all of my offerings is going to be integration. There's an integration piece in everything. And I've come up with five different exercises about how to take what you've learned and integrate it within the next week so that it becomes a part of your practice. So that there's not this, I made an investment and it's not working. Because I believe that the value of what I offer, and it sounds like what you're talking about too in your work, is that value of our work doesn't have any value until it lives in other people, until people are actually doing it. Exactly. Super. I, I just wonder, like you, you go to Europe you we, we hopefully meet there mm -hmm. and you run uh, your lettering class you write your books there's already a lot of things going on but are <laughs> there any other projects we haven't talked about that you think uh, let me highlight them they will not miss I'm out gonna, anything yeah i'm going to give you a big one so i've yeah. always had a 30 year plan my first 30 year plan happened when i was eight years old and i couldn't wait to be old enough that people would actually listen to me <laughs> uh -huh. i remember that was my goal i want to be listened to i want to be respected and i want my ideas to be taken seriously. And so I've always had this 30-year plan. So my 30-year plan now, I'll share it with everyone, and I've had people in our field laugh at me, and I've had people in, in our field say, sign me up. And my 30-year plan is I would love to be part of, and I don't have to run it, I just want to be part of this, organize it in some way, an assisted living center for visual practitioners. And say it again, an, an assisted, assisted living, living center, center for visual, for visual practitioners. practitioners. So a lot of us don't think about our final chapter or we yeah. think we're going to die the way we want. And we don't. And my husband currently works at an assisted living center. And I go there once, about once a month or every once in a while. And, and I interview people about their peak life experiences. And I put them on this great big uh, mural on a wall. It's a chalkboard mural. And I draw up, you know, what they love about their life. And, and it makes people feel a sense of community there. And I realized that all of these people have nothing in common with each other. And when I have this conversation with them, they actually learn about each other in ways that they've never known, but they all live in the same place. And some of them are really unhappy. And so I took the idea of an artisan residency, which I've done several of those and thought, well, when I get older, I want to literally be in an artisan residency for like perpetual, like until I die. Mm -hmm. And 
this assisted living center might be for artists, but it might be for visual practitioners. Mm-hmm. It depends on, you know, who get, gets my interest first. But there are already assisted living centers all around the world that are th- not, I don't want to say theme-based, but they're lifestyle-based. We have LGBT assisted living communities. Why can't we have this for visual practitioners? And even if you're not old enough to live in a living assisted center, why not create a community where we can have people traveling and visiting them to grow it into a place where we ultimately want to live out our final days? So I'm thinking future. (laughs) Yeah, this is a very nice idea. And I'm just wondering, assisted living center is is one thing, but like in, in its way, that you you are you are together you're not alone and you you can draw together probably every wall mm-hmm. for me yeah. would be then a whiteboard or like paper everywhere but like how about doing that cross generation wide exactly like, yes and that's the first thing that people say if they're not laughing at me that's the first question they ask and so already we're talking about creating either a community that you buy into um a, a spot and then you leave that to your family for your next generation but you also bring in people younger people who can lift things <laughs> and they actually learn from us about what are some of these organizational development or what are the tools that we used when we were in our peak career and then we use them for their energy and strength to actually get some big things done, right? So we train them and they help us. And yeah, cross-generational is the perfect answer of how we make this work. Yes. That yeah. sounds like a good idea. Very nice. So and I we know, can have them all over the world. Yes. Sorry. We can have them everywhere. <laughs> yeah. No, it's It makes total sense to me because I, like in my world, like I have a Buddhist background and um, mm-hmm. I'm having a like a daily practice. And this is something that is it's actually happening in the on the western side like that people who uh, are buddhist as well they are becoming older and and they actually building those centers now yeah. so this yep. is something which is new because like buddhism is not native right in in right. europe so in in this way they are already those uh, assisted living centers coming up for for this part for this life philosophy part why not for mm-hmm. visualization it's a really nice idea So you are positioned wonderfully to figure out what's working and how we can repeat that, how we can repeat that for other kinds of communities too. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Very good. Do you have already something like, is it just the the idea or you have written something about or like, and what other projects you have, like you would like to share? Yeah. So I've been planting seeds. I've been planting seeds in other people, mainly because I know that it's going to take investment, money. Um, it's going to take people really wanting to do it. And so right now I'm just planting the seeds and I'm having great discussions with people. Nothing has formally been written down, but I just know that it's a 30-year plan. So a lot of it's going to happen organically. And I have a couple of people who are like, I'm ready now. And I'm going to see how I can support them to help them do that. Talking about supporting other people in their dreams, a really, really big dream of mine is to be able to document, so talking about other projects, is document master calligraphers. And right now, we have lost a lot of master calligraphers just in the United States uh, in this last year. I'm talking dozens of them where they've taught hundreds, if not thousands of students around the world in their lifetime lettering and calligraphy, and they're gone. And other than that knowledge being in books and in people, 
it's gone. So I'm really interested in this idea of the value of knowledge living in other people, this idea of knowledge transfer. Mm-hmm. And so my goal is to try to document what's happening in the calligraphy field specifically. And because so many calligraphy masters are older, they aren't as interested in technology. So many, and honestly, they haven't used it. Um, they've been ink and paper people, right? So it's not been a natural transition for them. But um, earlier this fall, I helped uh, a master calligrapher who used to teach in a different city um, every single week. So this was his job for over 35 years. He would travel wow. all over and be in a different city teaching calligraphy. And I taught him how to use Zoom. And I taught him how to do like what I do for Let's Letter Together, online virtual classes. And now he's taking virtual students. And his challenge is that his students aren't tech savvy, but he's in his 70s. (laughs) So I taught him how to use Zoom and he's now doing one-to-one sessions. And so I want to teach more people like that. I want to create a platform. So if a calligraphy teacher doesn't want to learn how to build their own website to teach online courses, they don't want to do Skillshare, they want to keep it scaled down to a smaller size and you know more intimate, that I can help them do that work. And it's quite selfish. I want to learn from them as well. And so I don't actually take payment. I just take lessons in lettering. And they have so much wisdom to share that I there's no possible way that I could get the kind of wisdom from them from taking classes because I get to have this one-to-one time and they're asking me questions about social media and marketing and things like that that I get to answer. Um, it's, it's information that's custom to them. So they're getting one-to-one you know, yeah. advice from me. And then I'll say, hey, I've got this going on. And they're giving me one-to-one advice, especially around teaching that I could have never gotten from any institution or from even taking a class from them. So This is, I think, sounds like a very good win-win. Like this yeah. Is and I, I would say to anyone listening is find that thing that you are so great at and share it with someone who has knowledge that you don't. And especially older people who have a, a lifetime of wisdom. Uh, there's a lot of people out there, especially people that are trying to sell how to market your work. Just share what you know. And it's like, okay, that's really great. But I, I don't believe that younger people who know technology... I mean, yeah, I'm sure they have a lot to share, but there are people out there that never touch technology. And if we can teach some of um, our aging generation technological tools and things that they need in order to stay relevant or even just stay alive and function, Mm -hmm. um, we've got so much that we can learn from them as well. Sounds like a very good plan. Like (laughs) I I remember when my, my grandmother got older, she wrote her memoirs. Like she Mm -hmm. wrote like a a, a book. And I think I was... In Australia at the time, and I just fixed her computer over internet, just like helped her basically to um, reset the views in in Word and to yeah. help her with the technology to write a, a real book. It was like in the end printed and like at least eighty pages with pictures, uh-huh. and she was she was in her like I think in her eighties when that happened. And it was, it is like a book that's like printed five times and and went to each of the kids. So my mom, for example, and it's like a lot of um, things you can preserve. Right. And I felt like very good. Like in some ways, of course, it annoyed me to fix the PC again and again and again and again. But like on the (laughs) other hand, it's like, this is like, this is, this is real history of things like the second world war and how to survive it. And, 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 things like that it's like an amazing uh thing and and life experience that uh, to preserve that it's, it's great work 
really it's tried true. to do that. And it's true. And what you've done for her may have seemed so simple, but what you did made it accessible for future generations. Yes. That's yeah. just, that's, that just blows my mind. And I don't think with all the busyness that we experience day to day, we think about things like that so much. Or maybe we do, but we don't do anything about it. And here's mm. me encouraging you, find a way to, to preserve something. If it's not something you do, then some, someone who came before you. Very cool. Yeah. Heather, I'm just thinking of uh, the time and I just... Yeah. <laughs> you have to stop we, me. We should do another talking. episode together and, and go... I don't know. That might have been all it. Talk about agile coaching for a whole episode. <laughs> oh, Whatever we could do as well. Is there any other projects you say like um, on notes um, uh, you would like to share? Otherwise, I will ask you how people can contact you best. Yeah. I would just say... Check out um, this book that I'm writing right now. Someday it'll be out. Hopefully by the time this hits, <laughs> maybe by the time this hits the streets or maybe pre-sales will be available. I don't know. It's my first really big one. So it's quite a journey. Um, but that's my big project. And that's going to gauge whether or not the, you know, what people do with that book is going to gauge how I write probably my third book. Because the mm -hmm. second book is going to be literally hopefully my lettering tour. Hopefully it's going to be what I find when I travel around and, and um, hopefully that'll, and that is, that book's kind of for me, but it's also for everybody who wasn't at the lettering tour. So we'll see if people find that interesting too, but yeah, that's probably my big project. And then of course, yeah, I'll give you the contact information for people to be able to reach out if they're interested in collaborating in some way. So the people can find you and let's let together.com. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's the main website, right? To go to. Yeah. And yeah. what was your blog again? It's just my name, heathermartinez.com. Perfect. Yeah. And the other social medias we put in the show notes, so we do that? Yes, absolutely. And I have to say that I love Instagram. So if you try to find me on whatever other platform besides Instagram, uh, chances are I'm not as current on those. But Instagram is my place to be. I just love looking at pictures. So what's your Instagram account? It, yep, it's at, and it's a little abbreviated, corp, C-O-R-P, graffiti, And graffiti is spelled G-R-A-F-F-I-T-I, art, A-R-T, corporate, corp graffiti art. Perfect. Thank you yeah. very much. Thank you. And yeah, I would like to thank you for this, this awesome conversation and um, look forward to your book and to see you in Cologne probably. And yeah, yeah then I just wish you an, an amazing, what do we have, almost lunchtime in, in Colorado. Oh, almost. Marcel, I have to tell you, as a yeah. publisher, because I published a magazine for many years and worked with a lot of writers who did a lot of interviews, you pulled out so much more information than I think I've ever spoken about. And yeah. I just want to thank you for, for asking such great questions and giving me an opportunity to share. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Really nice. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That was wonderful. Thanks again for listening to this episode. And if you find it useful, find it valuable, then please share it with your friends that it helps to get the word out and inspire more people. Give us a star rating and leave us a comment. That is absolutely important for us that more people listen to this podcast. And finally, let me remind you again, if you feel like I have a story to share as well, you have two options. Write to us an, an email that says, hey, I would like to be on the radio or let's write a story together about your personal transformation and share it as a blog post to the world. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.